Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Hello, Alex. Hello, Bobby. We have a bonus episode today, but the circumstances of our very fucked up world have demanded that you and I sit down and talk first. So here we are. Later in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with a candidate for the United States Senate. Yeah. From the great state of Delaware, the first state, Jessica Rain. She was lovely. She gave us so much of her time. It was really fun to talk to her. Um, but Alex, we planned on putting this episode out Thursday morning, and then here we are Wednesday night, and um, eight Major League Baseball teams decided not to play their games tonight um, as, a, as a show of protest and as an, as an act of solidarity with the NBA. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks decided that they were not going to play game five of their first round playoff series against the Orlando magic in the NBA bubble. And then the rest of the NBA followed suit and as well as the, the WNBA and some MLB teams, not all MLB teams followed suit, but that's where we are right now. And that's where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. Um, we, we still wanted to put out this conversation with Jess because it is pertinent to a lot of what's going on in Major League Baseball and the world at large and her Senate race, but I felt like you and I needed to talk first. Yeah, things are uh, things are weird right now. Weird times in, in Major League Baseball and sports in general, but, um, but MLB in particular seems incredibly torn over this. There are as many teams, more teams playing games right now as we record on Wednesday evening, there are more teams playing than are actually sitting out. And I mean, frankly, the fact that there are any sitting out at all is, I think, maybe a bit of a shock to some of us who are um, more uh, more devoted to following the kind of um, social justice endeavors of the league at large. Uh, the, the, the Milwaukee Brewers were the first major league team to kind of take that stand with, uh, with one and only Josh Hader being the, uh, the in the mouthpiece for them and saying, yeah, this stuff's wild. We don't know if we're going to play a game or not. Um, there's a lot of processing going on right now. And I, I think it would be beyond us to kind of speculate what this means for the league and, and what teams are going to do tomorrow. Um, but this really does feel like a, a, a moment in baseball history that we will remember. Um, and it feels remarkably different from where we were maybe two and a half months ago when there were protests kind of flaring all up uh, around the country. And many teams decided to voice their solidarity, right? Send out tweets of support. Um, say we're donating $50,000 to this organization, whatever it might be. But this feels like real, this feels like real action that is coming from the players themselves and is not coming out of a 
a PR department that says, mm. how can we toe the line between, um, appealing to these protesters around the country, but also not alienating our fan base. These are players who are taking their labor and saying, we think that something bigger is going on right now. And baseball is not the most important thing. So fucking all the power to them. That's what matters right now. We should be talking about Jacob Blake and what's going on in Wisconsin and around the country and has been going on for decades at this point. Yeah. I think the amount of players who are being so unequivocal in what they're saying is what is so startling to me as someone who's followed baseball my whole life is that whether players wanted to or not in the past, they just couldn't be as unequivocal. They couldn't say the Cole Tuckers of the world 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or God forbid 50 or 60 years ago or God forbid 70 or 80 years ago before baseball was even fucking integrated. I mean, we're, we're less than a century away from that. They just didn't have the cultural landscape to be able to say ending police brutality is more important than sports right now. That's what Cole Tucker tweeted and it's such a powerful and and concise message about what it means to take back your labor, what it means to stand in solidarity. And that's a word that you used. And it's a word that gets thrown around a lot now online and offline and among people who want to voice their support for Black Lives Matter, who want to voice their support for people of color who have been marginalized and systemically oppressed. But this is this is solidarity. Like This is what the word in action looks like. It's taking back your labor is going on strike i mean this is a strike yes, this is a, literally this is a wildcat is. strike it, this is taking the action that you can in your workplace and what you can control and i'm um proud of the players who have chosen to do this i'm simultaneously disappointed in teams who have chosen con- to continue to play while while their black players have not played that being the chicago cubs that being the st louis cardinals who Jason Hayward, Dexter Fowler, and Jack Flaherty decided to sit out, yet the Cubs and the Cardinals decided to play. That's not solidarity. But but Bobby, you don't understand. The, the team has full support of Jason Hayward. You know? Like, they support his decision. They're totally backing him right now. You know? I mean, they're going to go and play the game, but they back the idea of him. Yes. And I want to say that I'm I'm happy for the teams that have chosen not to play and I'm I'm very happy for the reasons that they've given but I will say and this is what we say every time MLB cautiously embraces or or teams or and organizations cautiously embrace any social justice fight is that they could be doing better and not only could they be doing better but the WNBA is doing better on the same day and the, the NBA is doing better on the same day. The WNBA is always doing better every day WNBA, than all of the other Yeah, they've been doing better for, for months at this point. It's here. It's in our realm of political discourse. It's in our realm of sports discourse. It's in the realm of athletes to be able to take action. And that example is there. And damn, I, I would love baseball a lot more if if baseball players chose to take the guidance of the WNBA players who have been walking out of games, walking out of the national anthem, kneeling for years, wearing shirts that say, I can't breathe for years during warmups. Everything that you're seeing other leagues cautiously start to embrace, 
the WNBA has been doing for so long and they've been leading the way. And it just feels like now they're starting to be heard because the spotlight is bigger nationally and the frustration, the anger, the trauma, the despair is so much more amplified than it's ever been that it's bleeding into every single aspect that it that held out in the past that can't hold out anymore. Whether that's your tech company or whether that's your sports league or whether that's your cereal brand. It's all the places that previously were uncharted territory for these kind of conversations. And I'm hoping that we don't just start playing baseball again in a week and, and not realize the the momentousness of this occasion and the power that we can harness as a sports league, the power that if we took the guidance of something like the WNBA and unfortunate as it is, amplified it to Major League Baseball or the NBA where there's much more money, there's much more advertising, there's much more sponsorship and there's more eyes on the line because of a, a history of gender inequality in this country. We could be doing a lot more and we should be doing a lot more. Yeah, and... I want to I want to leave room for the the fact that there are probably more players who have real human thoughts about this than are speaking out right now about it or are are sitting out games because as we've talked about Major League Baseball both it's in its fan base and in its front offices and in its clubhouses are are incredibly conservative a lot of the players themselves are. And so I think that there is probably a not insignificant amount of people, right, uh, of players right now who care very deeply about this, but feel like maybe the environment that they're in doesn't support that sort of thing. And it's really only until you have that cover both from, from your team around you and from the, the wider conversation that you can feel safe to, to actually come out and speak about this. So there are a lot of layers to, to what is going on. It's, it's extremely hard to parse and we're not going to, we're not going to try and do any, any grand analysis of what's going on right now because it's very early stages and things are going to change in the, in the coming days. And it's really hard to predict where things go from now. Um, but I, I think it's important to note the support that we have for for all the players who are making that decision right now to sit out and not play baseball. Cuz like this shit is a there's a hurricane that's about to hit Louisiana. Like baseball this shit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. <laughs> like bro. But you know what does matter though? And this is the last thing I'll say before we get to our conversation with Jess. You know, you and I make fun of owners all the time. We make fun of ownership. We make fun of management in baseball. And we joke about how they don't actually like the game and they're ruining our experience and they make it hard to watch MLB TV and all these blackout markets and everything that you and I talk about on a week-to-week basis. So let's keep that same energy when we're talking about stuff like this. Because ownership groups, owners, single owners, all of these people, they're the ones that are lobbying Congress members. They're the ones that are actually creating and influencing the political landscape on a fundamental and deeply contextual basis, day in and day out, based on their money, their contributions, based on what they choose to do with the political weight that they can throw around. Owners are the ones that should be 
understanding what their players are saying, what their players are living in their experience before they get to their major league clubhouses. And even when they are in the major league clubhouses, if you're a black baseball player, it doesn't matter when you get pulled over that you're making $30 million a year or you're the starting center fielder for whatever baseball team. And it's always conspicuously silent from the ownership side, other than we support our players decision to X. Well, how about you support your own decision to actually fucking do something? (laughs) I'm serious. Like we don't have any proactivity from ownership in sports about changing anything. Yeah. And God knows that owners don't want politics in their sports. You know, that owners are very nervous right now with what's going on with players, realizing their collective power to stop working. And so if you don't want that, then fucking change it. Use your power, use your influence, use your money to make it better for the millions and hundreds and tens of millions of people in the in this country right now who don't feel safe on a daily basis. And then, yeah. oh. then it won't bleed into your fucking sports. Owners are sitting here really hoping that players forget to know how to strike come, uh, come next offseason when the, when the CBA is up. They're yeah. like, fuck. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say, let's remember Kurt Flood, the guy who fucking spoke out against owners and said, you're not going to treat me like an object. I'm a human being. I can make my own rational decisions. He did that decades ago before any of this stuff happened. And uh, that's, I don't even have more to say. Shout out to Kurt Flood, who laid the groundwork for all of this stuff, both in baseball and sports in general. Absolute trailblazer. Yeah. Okay. Um, We're going to throw it to our conversation with, like we said, candidate for the United States Senate, Alex. One of the 100 spots in the United States Senate, Jess Skarain, progressive candidate, uh, pro-labor, supports a lot of the same stuff that we support inside and outside baseball. We had a really good conversation with her. I do want to say, this was recorded on Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, the 23rd, and that was before Jacob Blake was shot by police, and that was before the protests in Kenosha. So we don't discuss any of that, and the con- the tone is going to be more jovial than than this last 20 minutes of Alex and I talking. So if this is not what you need in this moment, if this is not what you want in this moment, um, I encourage you to just just pass, save it for later. Um, and if you do stick around, we hope you enjoy it, and we hope you get something out of it. And, and just to say, we're we're going to be discussing this, what's going on in baseball at greater length this weekend. So this is not a a cap to our conversation, but you know we want to bring a little lev- levity to your to the middle of the work week for you. So. But like Bobby said, if you want to just hit the skip button and come back this weekend, that's A-OK. All right, Alex. This is this is a first for us. We've had a lot of guests recently. We've had even more guests this year as we've leaned on other folks to help us understand how we feel about baseball in these pandemic times. Um, but we are joined now. But Jess Skarain, candidate for the U.S. Senate in Delaware. Jess, hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So the the impetus for this was we saw that you were tweeting about Tatis. And when <laughs> someone is tweeting about Tatis, <laughs> we're like, this person might 
have to come on our podcast and talk about Tatis. So I, let's just take us through the tweet, first of all. You oh, tweeted, okay. which a lot break of down people... The tweet. Break down the tweet, which is a, 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 a segment that we do maybe too much on this podcast here, breaking <laughs> down our own tweets. Um, you tweeted, and it was circling around baseball Twitter for a while. I know a lot of candidates don't always like to weigh in on hot-button controversial topics, but I think Tatis swinging on 3-0 was good, actually. So what made you feel the need to, to speak out so boldly about this topic well first i want to appreciate that you corrected my typo when you read that and actually inserted the word that i never tweeted properly which is how you know it's a tweet from me because it's about (laughs) baseball and it has a typo but anyway um well i just think it's funny that like i i don't know i always get so angry and just so tired of these people who like begrudge players for having fun and for like playing the game hard because they're the same people who will come out and be like oh they didn't run out that like would have been a double play ball. And that's why it actually ended up being a double play. And they should have, you know, been busting their ass down first baseline. So like, it's the same people who have problems with players playing the game, no matter how they play it, particularly like Latin players, let's be serious. So I don't know. And there's always this, there's, I don't know. I've been tweeting about baseball and music basically, because those are the things I care about, like from my campaign account. And mostly they just like (laughs) die because people are just like, we do not follow you for this content. (laughs) But like, I've had two pop off. One was about the new hum album, which rocks. And this one about Tatis, because it's just like, I think it's important to still be a person while you're running for office. So I don't care if no one wants to like it. I still just want to share my opinions on things. And I just thought it was sort of a funny joke where it's like you kind of start being like, oh, she's really going to weigh in on some like controversial you yeah. know, policy issue. And it's like, no, it's just literally like, let them play, let them have fun. Like, so that's, that's all it was. And that's just me firing off tweets by myself. <laughs> my, my team is very kind to just let me tweet whatever I want. Like some, <laughs> sometimes I'll get a message just like, eh, maybe that one was not really a hit. I'm like, eh. It's fine. <laughs> uh, a Senate candidate name dropping like Fernando Tatis and playing the the game the right way and the new Hum album like in the same sentence of like these are my right. viral tweets. <laughs> <laughs> this is your platform is exactly. more swinging three zero and oh, yeah. uh, more expansive rock. Yeah, and just make it sludgier all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just I don't get it. Like, who doesn't want to see a young, exciting player like hit a grand slam? And then this concept, the concept of unwritten rules in baseball is hysterical to me already, but like, it's always used against young players. It's always used to try to like get people to like play the game the right way. But like, especially this year, like we have taken written rules and just destroyed them. Like we're playing games with seven innings. We, (laughs) we put a player on second in extra innings, which I am so angry about. So like, I just think it's very funny to talk about unwritten rules when we have like, we're basically playing a different game in this season and it just feels so counterintuitive and dissonant to me and it was a very dumb controversy yeah <laughs> our, our friend and former guest of the podcast ty kelly former phillies and mets infielder you know he's famous for his tweet which he put on shirts that said pimping home runs doesn't matter the planet is dying <laughs> and then he tweeted out swinging three oh doesn't matter it's a pandemic or swinging yeah. three oh doesn't matter the the, the planet is dying those two things are interchangeable yeah. um I think so. I think when Alex and I started this podcast, we never envisioned that like all, all our interests might align to this point where like a progressive candidate for the Senate would also care about unwritten baseball rules. So it's really it's really interesting to have someone on to hear you talk about this. Yeah, stuff. I'm, I'm very niche. <laughs> <laughs> the Venn diagram overlap is like it's an audio medium, so you can't see me doing what I'm doing with my hands, but it's very small. <laughs> but I wa- so I want to talk about 
I want to talk about your interest in baseball then, just kind of your journey through becoming such a big baseball fan. Because it sounds like this is something you think and care about. You're firing off tweets about it, much like us, much like the rest of the baseball community. So um, I guess just growing up as a fan, take us through like your baseball journey and how you got to this point. Yeah, I grew up a Yankees fan, which a lot of people don't like to hear. Um, but I grew tough, up in New York. Tough pill to and, swallow. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where I started. Um, although I was weirdly obsessed with Frank Thomas as a kid, like that nice. was just like my favorite player. I don't know why I had, I, mean, like, I had very few baseball cards, but I had like a Frank Thomas baseball card. And he was just like my guy for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I grew up a Yankees fan. I grew up like playing softball and just like enjoying the game. Um, I kind of fell out of it, I think like through college and, and stuff like that. But then we just got into playing fantasy and that really brought me back to the game and like just a general love of baseball as like a sport. And even my fandom is kind of weird now. Like, I don't know that I really have a team that is like my team anymore because I kind of stopped liking the Yankees because of the way that they built their team and like not investing in young talent and bringing it up. Like some of that's shifting now, but back, back then it was not the case. And now I live in obviously in Delaware and, and the Phillies are the local team here. So I certainly like watching them not right now but i think we think we could get there to a place where they're an enjoyable team to watch again um so but so now it's just become that i just like watching like young talented players and i like again now i'm running for office so i don't get to watch nearly as much baseball as i'd like and i haven't played fantasy this season either because of that but I think that it just has instead become like just a love of this game that I genuinely enjoy. And when I encounter people who don't like baseball, it really kind of baffles me because I'm like, so you don't like sitting outside and drinking beers and just like hanging out with your friends. Like, cause that's what <laughs> I think of baseball as like my husband and I have been trying to get to every major league state stadium. And we're mm-hmm. like, I think we're at 18 now. And it's just such an awesome reason to like travel the country, see what different cities are like, see what these different parks are like. and and experience something that's like literally just people playing like a game that I genuinely enjoy. So now I'm in this, yeah, I'm in this odd place right now where I just feel like a, I don't really have a team. I really like, I liked the, the A's and the Astros for a while. And that's kind of like who I was rooting for. Then the Astros kind of like, you know, yeah, interesting combo. <laughs> don't, A's don't and love Astros. That now. Yeah. Those <laughs> right? are, I know it's weird, but they were like the teams I really enjoyed watching. And now I'm just kind of not a little sour on the Astros, obviously, but so now it's just, I kind of check in. I try to make sure I stay like up to date on highlights, but uh, it's, it's hard to have hobbies when you're running for office. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, can we, uh, can we sit down and watch the, the A's game tonight? Oh no, you have another campaign rally. Sorry. Remember <laughs> yeah. you're trying to win a Senate seat. Yeah. I think I've, I haven't really gotten to watch a good amount of actual games. I've gotten to sort of just like check in and highlights and clips and stuff and try to pay attention to what's going on. But I'll get back to it, maybe, or I'll have a, a, or maybe I'll have a really serious job and I won't get back to it. <laughs> we'll see. Well, that's the other question. Ladder. Like, if you, if you win, if you win the seat, or when you win the seat and you go Thank to you. Washington, <laughs> and are, does that mean you're just going to become one of those like senators who just it becomes a massive Nationals fan and just is like chilling up in the boxes up there? I hope not. No, that's I'm what a, we got to avoid. I'm a lady of the people. Like we're not. <laughs> My box experience is very limited and I don't enjoy it. I don't, I've, I've been in a few boxes just for like attending events and stuff. And I'm just like, this is awful. Like you're just disconnected from it. Everybody's watching the game on TV. And it's like, why are you, why are you even here? Why did you even come yeah. down to the park? Because I'd much rather be sort of in the stands. That's part of the travel that my husband and I are doing with these stadiums is like, 
we'll buy, sometimes we'll just buy the cheapest seat we can get to get into the park, like standing room tickets or whatever, and just wander around and try to like make friends and talk to people and and just kind of get the vibe of the stadium and of the team and of the fan base. And I, I think that's what's cool about baseball in general. It's just like sort of the way that you can kind of like connect to the community that exists around these teams. And yeah, exp- experiencing that from a box is is not possible. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we talk about uh, on this podcast is that idea of fandom and how interchangeable it, it kind of like, it's okay to kind of bounce around in 2020. Like there's so many baseball historically has been like so regionally isolated, like fan bases. And it's almost more fun to just kind of like pop in yeah. to the, to the various like teams when they're good and they're fun. Like everyone is a Padres fan right now. And I think that's good. And <laughs> except better, Rangers fans. Better. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah. And I think things like, you know, we're also like MLB TV subscribers. So like that makes that easier too, because you can kind of just be like, Oh, this, this player's up. Let me go watch that at bat. Let me jump and watch this, this reliever pitch this inning or whatever it is. So you can kind of like get more exposure to players that you would otherwise never see. And that's what I like. I like just like finding players that like have these weird quirks about the way they play the game. And like, I like when their personality comes through. I like when you see them like genuinely having fun because they are playing a game. And I I think that's what kind of keeps me coming back to it. And and that's one of the things that we love about minor league baseball. I know that you're a big minor league baseball fan as well. A big Wilmington Blue Rocks fan. And yeah, that's actually my home team now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, I'd love to. I'd love to hear more about like your experience with them and like going to minor league games and how it feels versus going to major league games because I think everybody knows like who their hometown minor league team is because you know if you're a certain type of baseball fan, you appreciate like the weirdness of it. You appreciate how authentic a lot of it feels, and and m- maybe most importantly out of all of the things that I'm saying and stumbling through is that you appreciate that you can actually afford to go and afford <laughs> to pay for the beer and and get a hot dog and dinner like when you're at the game and so you know I grew up 10 minutes from Trenton Thunder so like that was my minor league baseball team so um I'd I'd love to know if you have thoughts about like minor league baseball versus major league baseball and your experience with the with the Blue Rocks Yeah well the Blue Rocks stadium is a great stadium it's like very comfortable and fun to watch a game from. And I think it's a good, exactly what you're saying. It's, it's more accessible. Like you can actually bring a family there potentially and, and buy tickets, you know, tickets are 12 bucks versus 40. And even if you don't, you bring young kids and they are going to be bored or like running around, like you don't, it's kind of accepted. There's just this, like, there's a bounce house out in the outfield to entertain them. There's, the the thing that most people know, well, I won't say most people, but the thing that always kind of bleeds out of the cracks about the Blue Rocks is like their weird mascots. Mm-hmm. So like there's Rocky the Blue Winkle, which is like literally a moose who's the main mascot. But then there is Mr. Celery, who every time the Blue Rocks score comes like running out of the tunnel and like does a lap around like the field and the kids run down and get to slap his hand. So like there's a closeness to minor league baseball that I think is so much cooler than you will ever get at a major league game. Like literally the kids run down to the fence and like can see the players, can see the mascots, can can like sort of touch the game. And then there's also just, it's cool that you get to see the scouting experience too. So like that's where we all, we'll often sit sort of like right behind where the scouts sit and kind of just like mm-hmm. 
watch what they're talking about, watch what they're queuing into, like look over the shoulder about like, you know, how fast that pitch was <laughs> and like get, we get to sort of, I don't know, play fantasy scout, but like bleed into that experience a little bit more too and get, get exposure to like so much more of what's happening in the game. So there's like this really level of accessibility about it, but then also this level of like the actual expertise that's behind it too, that you kind of get exposure to and see that you just don't, can't see at a major league game. Yeah. I think especially if you're trying to like bring a friend or get like a new fan into the game, like minor league baseball is the, is the avenue to do that. Just cause like you're saying you have that like unfettered access. You really feel like you're, you know, you can smell the sweat coming off the players at that point. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it's like, it's gross and it's small <laughs> and it might be a little dingy, but it's really like, it feels very, it feels like home. Honestly. Yeah. And so again, people knowing me, my, the company that I worked for used to just throw people little like, um, bridal shower parties if they were getting married. And I just, I was getting married. I really did not want this to happen. I was like, I don't need this. Like, this isn't my thing, but they did it to me anyway. But what they did to me was they bought a bunch of tickets to a blue rocks game. And we nice. all went like as a huge company group to this game. And that was the way that they were like, we get you. This is what you like. But there were a bunch of people that had just never been, even though they live here. And it definitely was like a, a way in for them. And now they've gone back because it is just sort of, it's about baseball, but it's also, there's like this entertainment element that exists in the minors too, right? Where there's something happening between like every inning, like they bring people up and they do like trivia and they do these absurd races around the bases and like some are for kids, but some are for adults and those are even funnier. And like, you can actually participate and like get down on the field if you wanted to do that stuff. So there is this like closeness that I think brings people in and just makes it even a more enjoyable experience. And then like, sometimes the baseball is like <laughs> secondary, but, <Yeah. laughs> but it's like a way to bring people into it and recognize like, this is a fun thing to do. It's cool to support the local team. It's cool to just have that kind of, I don't know, local fandom too, to, to be a part of. Yeah. So Alex and I met in college and one of the first things, I don't know if it was the first time that you ever came back to Philly and like met my family and everything, but I remember when you came over the summer, like one of the first things that we did was like, we're just going to go to a Trenton Thunder game. Like we're just going to go hang out. And it's a nice like change of venue. And it's something that I wish I did even more like when it was so close to me. Like now that I live in Los Angeles, it's not quite as close. It's not quite as accessible. And the only thing that's close by is Dodger Stadium, which is expensive to get into. And it's a great place to see a baseball game, obviously not right now. The only reason I've been to Dodger Stadium this year was to get tested for COVID, but which is super dystopian. Yeah, but it is sucks. something that I it is something that I miss quite a bit about like just the fact that minor league baseball is not happening this year, but also just like having like you're talking about a hometown minor league baseball team. So I'm happy for you that you have that with the Wilmington Blue Rocks. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. And it's it's cool. It's a it's a cool stadium. They had the like minor league all star week there a couple years back. Like that was again, like just attracts a different type of crowd too, which is cool. Like get people who maybe don't care about a game, but will come watch this absurd home run derby and like participate in these like kind of funny hijinks that were happening. Like they did the home run derby. They, because that stadium is huge. It's actually a very big park for a minor league um, park. 
they they set them up in the outfield and they pulled them in like 20 or 25 feet from the wall <laughs> and they pitched at the wall and then hit into the stands. Oh my God. <laughs> so like usually when you're at a minor league game, you're never going to catch a home run, right? Like because yeah. there, there aren't typically seats out there. Yeah. They don't need that many seats. So this was like a first time where you could maybe catch a home run ball. Like, but I also was like, this is terrifying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think they took like some of the nets down. I'm like, oh God, this is, seems dangerous. But, oh God. <laughs> but like, it's just cool that they just find ways to like make things work in these stadiums and, and like they can kind of have more freedom to make it still baseball, but entertaining to the, the people that are, that are going to come. That yeah. wall that you're talking about in the outfield of of like where there's no seats and how it's just like classified ads that very like typical minor league baseball <laughs> just like always a wall center ad. field but yeah exactly <laughs> but like I found that so funny about Buffalo this year the Blue Jays playing there where they're I mean they've changed the ads and everything it's not like the local diner like getting a really expensive ad for free this year but like <laughs> which is unfair they should have allowed them to keep I it. agree I agree <laughs> but it's like yeah I know well that's a whole different thing and we could get it maybe get into that in a little bit but Alex sorry I cut you off. No, well, that and that's one of the things about minor league baseball is that it's not going to be the it's not the money driver for these massive organizations, right? It's not the thing that's going to rake in millions of dollars. It mostly exists a as um, obviously a developmental tool for these players, and b as a way for baseball teams to actually root themselves in their communities and build this these fan bases, and and one thing that or actually two things that minor league baseball have faced this year um, are a, the prospect of contraction, 40 teams getting basically dropped. Right. And B just an increasing talk about the conditions that minor leaguers are facing. Um, We bang the drum about minor league unionization on here. Every chance that we get. Here comes Um, labor talk. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm curious for you both as a um, progressive candidate, but also as a, as a baseball fan, just kind of how you've engaged with that aspect of the sport this year, because it feels like it's more laid out on the table than ever. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that's like the the thing that I struggle with because MLB is a little exploitative, right? Like in its in its developmental system and little is probably not a even accurate characterization. Like I think sometimes just talking to people about the conditions in which minor league players are playing is important because it's not the same as major league players, right? And we're talking about an organization that made almost $11 billion in revenue last year. And I recognize this year, that's probably not going to be the case, but these issues existed before this year. And it's, I feel like I have the same exact conversation about most of the issues in our country, right? <laughs> like all of this, the even the development leagues that exist in Latin America, these minor league systems, like they are, they are all structured in a way that see the players as expendable. And we're talking about players who, you know, the, the Wilmington Blue Rocks are a high, high A team. Like their average, they're making like, I think $6,000 a season for five months of work. And you can't survive on that. Even in AAA, they're averaging what, like $15,000. Like these are poverty wages that we are paying people who we're also expecting to be in professional level sports shape. And we are, they basically have given up any other stability in their lives to try to play this game 
many of them knowing that like they're not going to make it all the way through the developmental ladder, but because they want to play, they care about playing, they enjoy the game. And I, I don't, I get really, the, the problem I have is that they should still be compensated in a way that they can survive. And that is kind of the fight. And I think it's important to talk about the dollar amounts that people are actually making. And the and MLB will say it's because they don't want, to, I mean, they say kind of horrible things. Like they don't want to incentivize minor leaguers to stay in the lower, lower levels. So if we pay them shit, then they're going to want to move up. And it's like, that is just, I mean, completely absurd, right? Like, that's not making them hungrier to move up. It's making them literally hungrier because they can't feed themselves, but it's not making them want to work harder to get to the show. You are creating instead this constant question in the back of their mind of like, is this actually what I should be doing? Because I can't support a family doing this. I can't support myself doing this. I mean, in Wilmington, we're one of the teams that uses host families because they know that the wages that players are making, they cannot actually afford housing on those wages. And it's sold as like, oh, a chance to create this great local bond with the family. And like, I'm sure those relationships exist. I'm sure that that's, that's cool to like build a relationship with the player and look out for them. But maybe we should actually be questioning why that's necessary at all. And that's where I think we really see this exploitation, this abuse of players. And instead of using that massive power and revenue that Major League Baseball has to find a way to better support these players and actually guarantee that they can survive, they're using it to to actually harm them further. Like They've lobbied Congress to exempt minor league players from labor laws. So they have made it so that players can only be paid for like 40 hours of a work week, even though we know they're spending like 60 to 70 hours committed to baseball. Like you don't get paid for bus rides. Like Wilmington could be playing in Myrtle Beach. That's like a nine hour bus ride. And that's not considered like time you're getting compensated for. You don't get paid for the spring training season. You don't get paid for any pregame meetings, postgame stuff. Like that's not considered time that you're giving the team, even though it absolutely is. So when you actually break it down with the hours that they're giving to the team, they're not even making close to minimum wage. And even with the raises that they're getting in 2021, they're not making close to minimum wage. And it, that is that is something that we just, I think it's incredibly important to call attention to that because it should not be ex- ex- acceptable for any single type of worker. Yeah. It makes me think of the, of the like Ben Carson quote. And I think he was like talking about public housing or something like that. And he was like, well, we can't make it too nice for them, right? Because we want them to like pull themselves <laughs> up by their bootstraps. And ding, I'm like, ding, that's ding. We hit Ben Carson before the 30 minute mark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is just conservative austerity politics just transplanted onto a major sports entertainment. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like model for it. It's such a microcosm. It's so, it's so hard to just like, because when you, when you pull back one layer of the onion and think about it, it is just a microcosm for everything that we're facing Mm -hmm. in the uphill climb in labor politics and like all of the labor struggle in America. And Alex and I get super, like down on ourselves a lot about it because we talk about this stuff actively a lot and we don't just talk about like the players that we like to watch even though we also like to try to do that with Tatis as we started out (laughs) with this conversation but I'm curious you know I was listening to another interview that you did and you talked about the idea of cynicism and trying to pull away a base level of cynicism that you have about like the world in general but as it relates to to baseball I'm wondering how you balance those two things because of everything that we just talked about minor league baseball 
Um, but also like the major league baseball, you know, labor landscape is, is not particularly great either, but we all, all, the three of us on this call, like we know that not only is it exploitative of those people in the minor league system, but it is also like creating a barrier for entry that is just making a lot of people never even try in the first place. So I'm wondering how like you balance that, that joyous kind of childlike nostalgia for the game with like your sort of understanding and cynicism towards like the unfair labor practices, some of the stuff with them lobbying Congress and and some of the more, I guess, sociocultural issues that baseball is facing today. Yeah, Jess, give us some yeah, tips, right? please, because yeah. we need a lot of help over You're like, here. I want to keep enjoying baseball. How do I do that? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, no, I mean, I think that what I, I think what's important to remember, and this, again, I think this is a perfect model and microcosm of some of the other things that we're facing is like, we are not going to win any battles if we deprive ourselves of any things that make us happy and like entertainment and levity and enjoyment in our lives. Like we have to have those things to continue the fights that are hard and going to be going to continue to be hard. So I think it's important to still be able to enjoy things. I also think like we have to remember this is not on none of these problems are on like the consumer side. It's like when we talk about climate, like me making the decision to stop using plastic bags and start using like silicon reusable bags is not going to solve the problem of the climate. So me deciding that like I'm going to just boycott baseball because of their unfair labor practices is not going to solve the problem. So I'd rather make sure that we're always kind of reorienting the conversation about who's actually creating the problem. And it is these incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful owners of these teams who are working to basically be as greedy as possible. Like there are estimates that basically you could pay every, every team could pay like nine to $10 million to actually give living wages to every single player in the minor leagues every year. And they won't do it. And you're right. Like this Ben Carson thing of just this idea that we have to make people suffer to make them want better is culturally a concept we have to continue to push on and move away from because you actually can make better for yourself or for your family or for your community when you have stability, when you don't have to constantly be worried about like, is the roof over your head safe and and affordable? And are you going to be able to maintain it? Are you going to be able to put food on the table? Are you going to be able to pay your bills? Like living like that actually holds you back and actually prevents you from doing the things that you want to do in your life. So when we instead introduce this base level of stability in people's lives, when we can say there is a dignified standard of living that we are going to guarantee for every single person in this country, no matter what your job may be, no matter who you are, then that is when we actually get people to a place where they can take some leaps. They can do the things they want to do. Like you're right. There's this barrier to so many things that people face because if you are even if let's say you're a minor league player who comes from a very wealthy family and that means you've been able to play travel ball and you've been able to do all these camps and development things your whole life making $15,000 a year doesn't matter because you can still be supported by your family your family might be able to pay your rent you can go get an apartment you could be fine that is not true for someone who doesn't come from that background so these same like disparities that exist in our education system and in in even our political system where working class people don't run for office because it feels daunting and there feels like there's a barrier there. This exists in baseball too. And I think like we have to really be talking more about the systemic issues and not any one individual's enjoyment of the game because just telling people like you're wrong for enjoying this because of the way they treat players is not going to solve our problems. We have to more so say, how do we actually help to organize efforts for in, in, in to support the players 
if it gets to a point where like there's boycotts and things like that, then maybe those are actions we have to take. If it's like supporting striking or supporting, you know, work stoppages, like I think that's fine, but it shouldn't be led by us. It should certainly be led by the players. And that's true for every single action that needs to be taken. It should be led by the people who are most affected, but we have to be willing to sort of stand behind them and stand in solidarity and say, this is what's important to help. And I think the concept of even like organizing and campaigning and canvassing like applies, like making sure people know the conditions that minor league players are experiencing so that you don't get what you get so often, which is this backlash from fans saying like, well, they should just be grateful. Like, you know, like there's this, there's this quickness to like side with the owners that is sort of baffling to me. And I I think it's really, yeah, like it's, (laughs) you know, like you saw it a lot with the, um, the Albies extension where people were like, whatever, he's making millions of dollars. Like no one else gets to make that. And he's like, but he's also leaving millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. And the reason that he's doing that, or, or he's forced to do that is because of the fact that the teams have basically just frozen free agency and that's not a thing anymore. And now these players are taking like maybe drastic measures to try to protect themselves and, and get anything that they can. So it's like, again, it's a power structure in place. It's not, it's not about blaming the player. It's about calling out how the people in power are using that power to harm the, the, the more vulnerable and I'm still considering someone who makes millions of dollars in this system more vulnerable than the people who have billions. Yeah. I mean, it is just like, it is, it is what your boss is doing to you. I'm going to quote our friend, Michael Bauman, who said this to us on our, um, our yearly check-in off season labor and baseball check-in, um, which was like, <laughs> you know, we did that very prematurely, Alex, like we did it in December and uh, everything has changed since yeah, then. But he changed. said this, and it's still accurate, but it's what your boss is doing to you scaled up 10 times, 20 times, exactly. 30 times, 100 times. And I think conceptually, people have a hard time accessing that emotionally in the same way that they would access it in their own lives. Yeah, like because of the scale of the numbers, you're just like, well, if I had $35 million, I'd be happy, which what you probably wouldn't. But like, look at that $35 million <laughs> in contrast to the billions that the team is making. And then look yeah. at the share of it. And then, yeah, compare that to what your boss does. And the the, the, the discrepancy might be even higher at the level at the player level. But I think it's really dangerous because it it can sort of become this pervasive attitude culturally that like trickles down into your daily lives where we just sort you start saying like we should all just be happy with whatever we have and refuse to yeah. demand and fight for more because these all powerful daddies in our lives have just said this is this is what you get and you can't ask for anything more. And I think if you start allowing that to happen in these big public forums like baseball and labor issues in baseball, it absolutely trickles down to people's individual lives. And they, they take that attitude into their own workplace and say, you should just be grateful that you have this job. It's the same things you hear. There's always someone that else that wants this job. So just don't, just don't step out of line. Yeah. And, and that's that type of, there's that, that is disseminated through our culture right now. And it's why we don't have labor power for workers. And it's why it extends through every single one of these systems. This is the real trickle down economics where we watch it happen in baseball and it trickles down to our own workplace. Exactly. Let's put that on a shirt. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I was uh <laughs> I was watching a Bug's Life uh on oh, cool. by the, the, yeah, yeah. the Pixar movie the other day. Oh, and that is that movie what it's like is... to have time in your life? <laughs> 
<laughs> but that movie is are more radical than most yes. of the culture that has come out of the last 20 plus years Seriously. because it's about because it's about the majority of the workers who realize they're providing a service to the few and saying actually you rely on us mm-hmm. not the other way around yes. and and that's what it, and that's what it is takes, literally just right? about forming a union. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just, having exactly done it in the last in the last year, like I could tell you, that's exactly what <laughs> happened when we. Yeah. It's actually union. instructive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's cool because, like, you guys have had that experience. I haven't, so I I always feel a little, um, you know, like I advocate for labor power, but I have not been through the process of fighting and winning a union, and I think that is something that we need more people to have a perspective of, and we need more people to be fighting for. And I think that particularly minor league baseball, like the arguments against unionization are always like that it's hard or that these teams are all spread out and it's decentralized. And and I, I don't really get that. And again, I haven't been through it, but it, it does seem like we know who the employers are. There's actually only technically 30 of them. And then you look at something like the UAW or you look at Teamsters, which are these massively distributed models. So the, it, it feels like there are models to follow. I mean, even hockey has unionization for its development leagues. Yeah. So I get really frustrated by that, that take that it's just like, oh, this is too hard to take on and not to belittle the work of like actually organizing a workplace. Like I haven't been through it. I know I imagine it's incredibly difficult, but I think like sometimes it's more like there's, the barrier seems more like fear of players and not being like the one that wants to start and like the possibility mm-hmm. of retaliation. And because you were going up against this obviously massively influential entity, but I feel like we, that's where you have to be really strategic about like, where do you start and how do you make it so that teams can't retaliate by just moving players out of that league or out of that level or yeah. mo- like, firing them because at will employment means that you can just fire anybody for whatever. You're just like, Oh, there's season baseball reasons. Like you're yeah, done. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, I'd much rather have that, con- that conversation just like push past the debate about whether it's possible or necessary and just start like, we should be at the point where we're talking about strategically and tactically. What do we, what do you do to do it? Not, is it worth doing? Because I think we are beyond the point where it's obvious that it's necessary and it's just really about now, like what steps do you take to get started? Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest trip, like one of the biggest hangups is, you know, one of the most powerful things in forming a union and starting a union is that you need to have buy-in from the people who are going to be members once that union is recognized. And what you're talking about, that fear is not just a fear that's innate in the players. It's a fear that's been cultivated by owners for a hundred years. And it's been cultivated and, and bolstered by the culture and attitude around baseball and the fact that it's like America's pastime and you don't want to muddy it up with politics like it's politics, crazy that it's crazy right. that like forming a union is politics now but but it is and if you have always had this like worm in your brain about the fact that you don't want to muddy up like the the sanctity of the game and you don't want to make it look bad on a national stage if you're a minor leaguer and that's like a lot of the reason that a lot of the unwritten rules exist. Then you're you're afraid of doing that, and like you're yeah. afraid of getting that reputation as the person who tried to do that. But I don't know. I'm at least hopeful that it's it's a shame that it had to get so bad to this point, like with everything that we've talked about. But I'm at least hopeful that there are people who are interested in starting this union and starting the process, like you're talking yeah. about. But I do think it's 
the the point that we we're making earlier about how you hear these these kind of like you hear from these bootlicker fans who just like just want the teams to make as much money as they can and like that would certainly be in the back of my mind as a player too like are is the fan base going to turn against us for trying to look out for ourselves and it's very it's a very real possibility and that and that's why it's like i do think that there is this kind of there has to be like this grassroots work almost around organizing the fans alongside yeah, the players definitely. because you can't if the fans are going to take the side of the owners they're doomed and i think it really has to be about exposing the, the conditions that players really live in dispelling these myths of like oh well they only play for five months they could just go get another job which who Who's going to hire you for any sort of living wage job for like four months out of the year? You still have to do off-season workouts. You still have to like, you're not truly like free to go do whatever you want. And like we have to do, I think that's the place where people who aren't players can kind of contribute and dispel these myths around why it's, why they should not be asking for more and tie that back to people's lives directly to be like, this is what this looks like in your own workplace. And like, this is how they're being abused by their boss. They are being told there's some 17 year old kid right behind them that would rather have this job. So if they don't want to be here, they can just leave. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that at jobs too, right? Like where you start to push back and they're like, why do you think you matter? (laughs) It's like, that is that attitude from just bosses and, and people in power as a whole is like something we have to fight back culturally and as a society. And I think you have to organize the fans alongside with the players too. To, to get yeah. anywhere with this. Yeah, because the the fans can be like the fans can create they can um, mitigate either either mitigate some of that emotional labor that's going to be on the players as well from being told by certain bootlicker fans that they don't matter and the next player is coming up next or they can make it worse. Like they can amplify yeah. that emotional labor as well. And yeah. it really is about like there is a there's a personal emotional weight that players have to go through when they're like told that their labor doesn't matter. You know, like this thing that they've built up their whole lives, this job that they really love playing this game that they really love. Like they're going to go through a lot of emotional pain through that. So like either the fans can help or the fans can hurt. And right now it doesn't feel like enough fans are helping, you know, like we're trying to talk about it in a positive way, but you know, not, not enough fans are doing their part. I think. Yeah, I think I'm going to start flyering outside of games next season. <laughs> that's, absolutely. That's, that's literally idea. what it takes. Like, like, I'm like, there's actually actions we can take to help. Yeah. Like, and I think most people don't want to know that, like, this player that they've they've kind of, especially if it's a hometown, like, and they, they've been there for a bit and they're not moving up. And then they learn that they're making $7,000 to do this, like 300 bucks a week or like at best, 400 at best, like, there's something to that because you do develop these relationships with these players, particularly if they've stayed in your town for a bit. And I think we could do better as fans to, to sort of represent their interests too. I was, I was having a conversation with friends the other day about political grassroots organizing, right? And like what it takes to build a, a movement. And we were talking about the difference between like kind of putting forth a negative platform that says, well, you know, here are all the things right now that we don't have. Or if you elect the other guy, like here are all the bad things that are going to happen, right? Like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Democratic Party right now versus um, the, the putting forth a positive platform that says, no, there are a handful of people in power who are making you not have these that we can have. Universal healthcare. We can have like 
real quality housing for everyone, right? Like the future actually could be better, but it requires waking up and and looking at the the handful of people who really are holding all the power right now. And actually you're turning your attention to them as opposed to the people in the seats next to you and being yes. like, well, yeah. This is God, yes. this is the yes. real reason why they taught the us right in villain. elementary school. Um, <laughs> may I versus can I? Because like, can I have all of these things? Sure, we could give it to you. May I? Nope. Sorry, oh, you can't no, have no. all of these Absolutely things. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think again, I mean, if you really want to, this is the problem with our economic structure as a whole: is that you have to ask, "May I?" from the people who hold power. You have to go to them to get a job. You didn't get a salary. You have to fight for that salary. If you are unable to be paid in a way that you can actually survive, you got to go back to them for their philanthropy and their charity. And it's like, no one has any true economic freedom because it is all coming from this same concentrated set of power. And that's what we actually have to be fighting back against. And and like, Alex, the point you just make of like looking to your left and your right to find the people who are holding you back is exactly what the five people who are the wealthiest in our country want us to do, right? Like... (laughs) I always, I always say it's five people in charge of everything, but, but that, that keeps us occupied and it keeps them able to do whatever they want behind, like behind whatever closed doors, because we're looking at vilifying black people or brown people or immigrants or someone who's making slightly more than us Mm -hmm. rather than saying, you know what, we're actually generating all of the wealth of this country and we're do some things for it. And um, we're not asking, may I have it? We're telling you, this is how we're going to demand it. And I think that is absolutely how you excite people. That is what I'm seeing in the campaign that I'm running. It's, you know, we have to draw contrast. We have to be very clear about this is the way the incumbent has harmed you. And this is the way that they've enabled an agenda that hurts you and your family. But here's the vision of what the world could actually be like. And it's not out of reach. You've been told it's out of reach for your whole life. And I recognize that like that makes us feel like we have to sort of only operate within the system that we have. But that's what we've been doing for generations and making these tiny tweaks with like keeping these blinders on and just saying like, well, here are the three options in front of me. I guess I'll just try to compromise between the three of these things rather than saying like, why are we even playing the game this way? Like we can completely change the way that we achieve our collective goals. Like we can absolutely build the power behind the people to demand these changes. I think we are seeing it happen. I think we're also seeing some serious pushback to it. And we're going to, like, this is not going to be easy, but it's the right fight and it gets people engaged. And I think the fact that we have had an opportunity with the last four to five years to change the concept of what politics is in our country and make people realize that it's not just showing up to a voting booth like every two or four years, it's that's the start of it. And then it's now what fights are we going to have with that person we just elected? And how are we actually going to hold them accountable? And how are we actually going to continue to push on them? And building those organizing structures and those power structures outside of elections is incredibly important because those are the power structures you need to be able to call on in a moment of crisis. Like if you live in an apartment building right now and you haven't organized the tenants of that building, but now none of you can pay your rent, trying to organize in that moment of crisis is going to be really challenging. But if you do that in moments of relative stability, then you have that power to call on. And that's what the work that we have to be doing right now to to make sure that we have that power to call on in the coming years because we are absolutely going to need it. Yeah. 
Well, we completely agree. We're in complete alignment. We do have one final baseball question for you. Okay. Oh, God. All right. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be too hard based on everything that we've talked about for the last 30 minutes. I feel like you're well-equipped to answer this one. But What was Francisco Lindor's <laughs> OPS last year? <laughs> no. Um, we often say we need progressive leaders at the top of baseball, right? Like We wish that Rob Manfred was the type of person who could rally around some of the things that we've talked about. I wish about he was the type of person who liked baseball. Well... <laughs> There's a can Go of worms. Off. We've already Speak taken so much of your time, Jess. We don't need to open that can of worms about whether or not Rob Manfred has ever actually watched a fucking baseball game. But if you replace Rob Manfred, which I think Alex and I would be more than fine with based on this conversation, <laughs> what would your first 100 days platform be? You know, the first 100 days is a very big thing in politics. So what would your first 100 days platform, what is Jess piping through with priority? Um, we're going to renegotiate all of the TV deals to make them more like co-ops so that players get more money from the TV deals and it doesn't just stick with all the teams and owners. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's, that is going to take a hundred days. So just that. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a great place to start. Um, Alex, do you have any, any other ones? Any other lingering cues? I don't think so. But um, but thank you, Jess, for for coming on and doing this. This is Bobby yeah, and I were joking. Awesome. This is our this is our first foray into becoming the tipping pitches uh, super pack. So um, <laughs> as long as yeah. you don't, it's, as long as you don't accept corporate money, I will accept your donations. Right? <laughs> um, no, we do not accept corporate money. We don't accept any money currently, but that's okay. Um, Jess, if if people want to find out more about your campaign, or people want to find out how they can help, where can they go, and and what can they do? What should they do? Yeah, so what the may best- they do? <laughs> <laughs> they can do whatever they want. Um, the best place to start is my website, jessfordelaware.com. That's all spelled out. Um, you can kind of learn more about me there, the whole platform, which you know we didn't really talk about, but I guess people can probably guess. Let's talk about um, it right now. What, what, are the, what are the things <laughs> yeah. that we left out that you want people to know? Oh, no. I mean, I think, Alex, you hit on some of those things, right? Like guaranteeing universal healthcare, single-payer healthcare, so no one goes into debt. Guaranteeing housing because... We can absolutely eradicate homelessness for the same amount of money that actually that we spent to increase our military budget this year. Um, Convenient. Yeah, Yeah, look at that. Definitely no link Um, there. I'm a big supporter. I would sign on immediately to fight for a Green New Deal. Delaware is the lowest lying state in the country. We are already facing issues from rising sea levels, losing farmland, seeing flooding. Like it's a it's an existential issue for our state. Um, And you know, economic justice as a whole. Like not just fighting to raise the minimum wage, but also fighting for worker power, getting more worker co-ops and unions into our workplaces, making it easier for people to organize so that they can actually have power and dominion over their own lives. But yeah, so you can learn more about that at justfordelaware.com. The biggest thing right now, we are just about three weeks from election day. Our primary election is the last one in the country. So if you're looking to make a stand against establishment politics, and support the left. This is the election that you, the last chance that you have to do that kind of before the general. It's on September 15th. Um, We absolutely need people to help phone bank. We've got like an army of phone bankers that are dialing voters every single day. People in Delaware have their ballots right now. So we we um, instituted mail-in voting for the first time this election. So we are calling people like while they have their ballot in hand and while they're making the decision. So if you're able to give us some hours right now, there's a link for, to volunteer to sign up on the website, and that is incredibly valuable to us. Um, you could be the person who talks to a voter like as they're opening their ballot and they're making their decision, and, and that's incredibly important. 
And if you have money that you want to share, I will absolutely accept it. You can go to JustForDelaware <laughs> slash donate to make a contribution. And you know that goes right into paying our organizers, paying our canvassers, creating mailers, like direct voter contact, because that's how we've structured our campaign. And that's that's what we focused on this whole time. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jess, and, yeah. and best of luck on the campaign trail. Thank you. This is my highlight of my week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's great to hear. Well, thank no, you so much. Sunday. for Thank you for giving us... <laughs> Thank you for giving us so much time. We know how like we know how busy you are. Obviously, you said that the the primary is in three weeks, so we know that this is valuable time, and we appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it too. Okay, Alex. Thank you to everybody who stuck around and listened to this pod it was what you needed in this moment and what you wanted in this moment if you enjoyed Jess maybe um, let's all cross our fingers and hope that she wins the, the, the senate seat in Delaware that would be that would be really cool and if not then maybe we can get her to replace Rob Manfred what a, what a weird thing to be talking about on Tipping Pitches the, the baseball podcast that started out three years ago Talking about ago. yeah, talking about shortstops. I'm just talking about shortstops. Just talking about Yoannis Cespedes and the Mets and the A's. Now we're like, hey, you should go vote for this person we just had <laughs> on our podcast. Yes. Um, thanks to Jess. Big thanks. Thanks to you, Alex. Thanks to you, Bobby. Like Alex mentioned earlier in the podcast, we will be discussing everything going on in the baseball and sports world as it surrounds. Um, protesting police brutality um, as it surrounds racial justice. We'll be talking about that more later this weekend on our follow-up episode coming out next Monday. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>